right, as you guys make your way back to your seats, join me as we worship through the reading of the word of the Lord. This passage today comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Melinda, for reading our scripture for us this morning. I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are really glad that you're with us um, this morning on this, this chilly uh, Sunday morning. Um, I love love baby dedication day, um, and I was I was there in the front row. And if you couldn't tell, uh, Mabel Burr was the one who was just talking and talking and talking. And it's just so cool that, of course, it would be uh, the daughter of our two worship leaders, right? That, that that she is already like up on the stage, up in front, and she is getting after it. I thought that was uh, really cute. Um, today. We are going to jump back into 1 Peter. We've been out of it for several weeks. We had Advent, a couple of uh, standalone sermons at the beginning of the year, and now we're jumping back into to 1 Peter. And, and other than maybe a couple of breaks here and there, we'll be here uh, through probably May. And so we're going to jump back in and kind of uh, get going um, in the text once again. Will you pray for me? And then we're going to dive in. Father, I'm, I'm thankful for this time. I'm also thankful that uh, we have this day set aside on our calendars for the sanctity of life, to observe it, to recognize it, to remember it. Um, and I pray that you would continue to uh, give us the heart as a church and to equip us well as a church through your spirit to uh, uh, be about this cause, this worthy cause, to, to care uh, about life in the, from in the womb to lend, uh, end of life issues at the end of a person's life and everything else in between. I pray that we would be a people who care about life um, in all of those ways, in all of that spectrum. So continue to give us a heart for that. Give us wisdom in how we continue to be faithful to engage this cause. And as we jump into the text today, I pray that you would um, change us as a result of looking at this text, these these two verses we're going to look primarily at today are just massively important for our lives. And 
what I believe is the hinge point of this book. So I pray that you would help us this morning understand these words, that you would change us as a result of, of kind of placing ourselves under your word this morning and allow it to change us because we know this is the way you've revealed yourself to us. And it has power to change. And so I pray that you would do that this morning through your spirit. And we would be different people when we leave this place as a result of making your son's name great in what we see in your word. We love you and we love your son and it's in um, your spirit's name we pray. Amen. If I were to walk up to any of you and ask you the question, who are you, what would you say? Guessing the, the first thing, you would, we'd probably get names out of the way, right? You, you give me your name. But then you would probably go on to give me things like your job, how you spend your time. Maybe if you're a student or not and where you're a student at. Maybe you'll tell me if you're married, if you're, if you're a, a parent, you have kids, or you're a grandparent and have grandkids. These are the things you would probably think to talk about if I asked you the question, who are you? But the issue is that those things really don't get to the core of who we are and who we desire to be. So if we really think about it, the question, who are you, is aiming at identity. It's aiming at identity. And Tim Keller, I think, is really helpful um, when he talks about identity and, and having really two components, a sense of self and a sense of worth. Those two things make up someone's identity. So in light of that, I think better questions to ask along the lines of this, who are you, is to get really down to the core, down to the, the engine, what really makes us tick, are questions like, what are you living for? Like really, like what are you living for? What are you aiming at? And then whatever that thing is, whatever you answer uh, those questions with, the follow-up question to get to that worth idea is um, how, how is someone going to validate you in it? Like who gets to tell you if you are living up to what you are aiming at? Right? If you're aiming at something, if you want to become something if you're building your own identity, you have to have something or someone from the outside that helps you decide, are you worthy of that identity? Are you actually living up to it? Now, to give you some examples to help you think about this, uh, your core identity might be finding your approval in your accomplishments in work. Maybe it's finding your identity and approval in what you look like, your appearance, to try to make yourself look a certain way so a certain person will find you attractive. It might be finding approval through relationships. You'll find identity if you can be connected to this other person. That gives you a sense of self, a sense of worth. Your core identity might be that you're connected to a cause or a political party. Or maybe it's your um, ethnicity, your race, your nationality. Or maybe a group you belong to. It could even be OU football. Or it could be a theological idea that you're just super passionate about. See, all of these things can kind of be at the core of who we are. And can control us. And can cause us to, to live in distinctive 
ways. And that is why this idea of identity is so important, because it controls the way we live. And I would argue it has the greatest impact on how we live our lives is who that we see that we actually are. What do we spend our time? What do we spend our attention? What do we focus on? What do we effort? What area do we put effort into? That's probably where our identity is. And when we try to build an identity for ourselves, we will not have freedom and joy in Jesus. And even if you're not trying to find your freedom and joy in Jesus in here, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, I would bet you that you will not find freedom and joy if you're trying to build your own identity. And I'll share with you why here in a moment. And Peter wants us in this letter to be faithful exiles, faithful sojourners to to the purpose, to our cause. And we can't do that if we are trying to build our identity on something or someone other than Jesus. These two verses today, we're going to look at Peter, and, and he really shows us how we can live as faithful exiles out of this identity that has been given to us by God and through Jesus. This identity that has been given to us by God through Jesus. Now, when we were last in Peter, and, and this is, uh, Melinda read this, these, these verses, but verses 4 and 5 are key as we jump into verses 9 and 10. So I want to go back to verses 4 and 5. This is Peter talking to the church. As you come to him, that you is plural, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. That him there is is Jesus. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter gives us this imagery here where we are individual stones stacked on top of one another together. So yes, we are individuals, but we are, we are stuck together on top of one another like the stones in a house. And at the center, at the foundation, the cornerstone, the chief stone is Jesus. We, our house rises and falls with him. He's the key. But we're together built on top of him as this spiritual house. This is what he wants us to see. We're we're a group of people, right? This is a communal thing. And then in verse 9, our main text for today, he begins with four descriptions of who we are now, these identity statements. And there's also a fifth one in verse 10 that we'll also look at. So I want to read this passage, and then we'll kind of walk through some of these things. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. And Peter, who is writing this, is well versed in the Old Testament. And he's he almost this these entire verses are brought in, these ideas are brought into these verses as he's writing them. This this imagery throughout these passages. Listen to Isaiah 43, 20 through 21. 
The prophet says this, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to, here it is, my chosen people. The people whom I'm formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And we'll get that last line, we'll see that later in our time this morning. We also hear echoes of Exodus 19. This is right after God uh, uh, pulled Israel out of um, Egypt, and he's, he's beginning to give them the law. He, he tells Moses this about God's people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. See, even back in Exodus, God is trying to form a people for himself, and Peter is continuing that idea today for us. The, the Levitical priests played a special mediating role between God and all the nations around them, especially God's people, but also the nations around them. And now Peter is using that same language to say the church now will play that same mediating role in the, in the world we currently live, to the rest of the earth. We are now the kingdom of priests. We are now the mediators between God and the rest of the world. Now let's jump back into 1 Peter. Two, okay. He begins right before he gets into these identity statements. He says, but you. So it's almost like he's like, hey, look at me. If you're reading the letter, right? If you're reading this letter, you were back then. He says, but you. Like, listen. You plural. So y'all, right? The church, right? We're, I'm talking to all of you, Peter says. Together. He says, you are a chosen race. A spiritual race united in Christ. Now, why does Peter use race here, right? Why, why would he use race? Because one of the reasons was because racism was front and center in this context. Uh, uh, it was a big deal, just like it is today, right? In that day and age, racism was a big deal. And it was primarily between Jew and Gentile. So when he says race here, it would have perked attention. Like it was a little tense, right? And Peter is saying because of God's grace... And him choosing you, this now supersedes race. This spiritual race now comes before, is more foundational than your earthly born race. Now that is still important. It's still important to us, but that is not the most important thing anymore, Peter says. Then he attaches this word chosen to it to emphasize that we are accepted by God's grace, period. There's no like a both ways choosing here. It's a one way choosing. It's God choosing us, making us a chosen race, period. And we did nothing to deserve it. Nothing. Like we brought nothing spiritually to the table that made us worthy of God saving us and redeeming us. That's the point of grace. That's why it's called grace. So we talk about grace and mercy so much. And here's the deal. If we think we brought anything to the table, it changes our posture towards other people. It hurts our ability to be exiles and sojourners. Think about it, like, 
if you think you kind of, something clicked in your mind, that you finally had the light bulb went off for you, and you kind of came to an intellectual conclusion about things of the faith, and that's what saved you, you're gonna, your intellect is going to, you're gonna look down on people because they just don't have, they, can, they, don't, they haven't put the pieces of the puzzle together enough like I did to save for, for my salvation. Or maybe you were raised in a certain family, or in a certain church, and that this, this church was a really good church, and you just feel really bad for people who didn't, who didn't grow up in this church because that's why you were saved. Or maybe there was a special camp you went to. Or whatever it was, if you think you brought anything to the table, your posture is going to be one of kind of looking down upon others because you did something that maybe they didn't. We, we are prone to feel self-righteous and look down upon others. It's natural for us as humans, when we have, kind of have our identity, we've made our own identity, to, to look down upon people who don't share in that identity, who, who don't agree with us. But this is the story Jesus tells. Famous story where he says, okay, imagine this to the people listening. You have a Pharisee over here, and you have a tax collector over here. And the Pharisee's looking over at the tax collector, and he's like, what a big sinner. What a wicked dude that is. Tax collector. Whew. Worst to the worst, right? To, a, to a, a Jewish person back then. And he starts listing off all of his, his, his great religious resume here. I did this and I did this and it is pity. I pity him because he's not as good as me, right? And, and Jesus is using him as, a, as an example of what not to do, right? He was building his own identity on his religious performance rather than on God's grace. And it caused him to look down upon others. We did nothing to earn our identity given to us. And that is huge. That is foundational for what we're going to talk about a bit later. Paul says in Ephesians, it is the gift of God so that no one may boast. There is zero boasting in this whole thing. It produces humility in us. Next, and these things start to build off each other. We have your chosen race, now royal priesthood means we belong to a king. We're royal. We're united to him as collectively, as a group of people. We're a royal priesthood, and we give sacrifices to God as a part of being royalty. Our allegiance is to our king. Again, priests were the mediators between the people and God, and they would make sacrifices to God on behalf of God's people and other peoples around them that wanted to come into um, the nation of Israel, right? Peter takes this idea and tells us that as a, as a church now, we're a collection of priests. Spiritually, we are. We're a collection of priests. And as we live as exiles in this world, the world around us, its intent is to see us, to see how we speak and act and treat one another and love each other. And as the world sees that, they begin to want to know more about God. And we hope want God, want to be in a relationship with him. And so we are, in a sense, mediators between who God really is and the world. We show the world what God is like through how we live and how we speak and, and how we love, being that Sermon on the Mount people, right? And then, and then, and then it actually continues on. If we remember uh, Genesis 12, where God comes to um, Abram and says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and all the other nations are going to be blessed through you. Even today, in 2024, Providence Road is a part of that lineage, right? We're continuing on the call that is given to Abraham in Genesis 12. The next 
identity statement is holy nation. Holy nation. He uses this nation, this kind of geopolitical term um, for boundaries. He's trying to give us a vivid imagery of, no, this is, this is a nation, right? You're, you're a nation now. And by placing holy before it, he's basically, and we talked about holy um, uh, earlier on in the book, in chapter 1, but holy simply means to be set apart for a purpose. So we're a set-apart nation for the purposes of God. And this one, in particular, uh, created tension with the Roman government. Because the Roman government was um, polytheistic. So the early Christians... And really up until the, the early centuries of the church, they weren't persecuted because they were Christians necessarily, or they believed differently. This was a, this was a polytheistic culture, similar to our culture, right? Like, hey, as long as you don't force your beliefs upon me, you can kind of stay over there and do your own thing, and we're kind of cool. And you can kind of believe what you want to believe, you can believe what you want to believe or not believe or whatever, and we just kind of all like stay separate and treat each other kind of nice, and we'll all be okay, right? That was similar to the Roman government. But what... But, but they were persecuted because they believed their king was the one true God and was to be worshipped above all the other gods. Now, when they start preaching that, when they start talking that way to Caesar and the Roman government, uh-uh. No, 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 no. That rocked the boat. Right? That's, not, that, 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 that's not being quiet in the corner to yourself anymore, kind of doing your own thing. Now, they were preaching. They were talking about Jesus. They were talking about o- obedience and allegiance and kingship and royalty and all these things. So when push came to shove, they had to choose God over the Roman government. They chose God, and persecution followed. But this is why they were persecuted, because they were a holy nation, and they lived that out. Next, next identity statement, a people for his own possession. We belong to him. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. Paul uses the term bondservant often in the New Testament. We are his servants. We're, we're bound to him by covenant. It's a strong echo back to Exodus and the Isaiah passages. He rescues, redeems, and frees his people. We belong to him. And he paid for us. He redeemed us at an infinitely high cost. His son. He purchased us through his son's horrific death. This is serious. This is, we are his possession. We belong to him. We're his. And then in verse 10, you have the fifth one. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's, there's, there's some like orphan adoption language in here, right? You were once not a people. You were wandering. You, you didn't have someone that spoke to you like this. You didn't have an identity. You were left to create your own identity. But now you're a people, and you're my people. You belong to me. Why? Because initially you didn't receive mercy. You were dead in your sin. You had no relationship with me. But now you have received mercy. And Peter would say, in Jesus you have received mercy. Through his life, death, and resurrection you have received mercy. And this has... um, Echoes, and, and if you read this story, you'll see this language that Peter's using in the, in the Hosea-Gomer story from the prophet Hosea. Right? Uh, Hosea and Gomer, um, Hosea was God's prophet. Um, he tells, to, to, to give a, 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 a kind of physical imagery, real-life imagery of, of the covenant he has with his people, he tells um, Hosea to go marry a prostitute. 
Gomer, right? Goes and marries her. And then Gomer um, continues, to be, continues to be unfaithful to him. Wants to go back into, into prostitution. Go back to her old ways of life. God continues to tell Hosea, pursue, pursue, pursue. And he's trying to set up this example of what it's like when God is the faithful one in the covenant and his people are the unfaithful one. He's showing how strong God's side of the covenant is with us, his people. And you see verse, chapter 2, verse 21. This is, this is a bit from Hosea here. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. Verse 23, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, or on the people who have, don't have mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, or my people shall say, you are my God. See, through Hosea's marriage to Gomer, God shows his great love for his people, comparing himself to a husband whose wife has committed adultery over and over and over. And he uses this as a metaphor for having us having received mercy over and over and over. So when we try to make an identity for ourselves, we won't have freedom and joy in Jesus. And we won't live as faithful exiles or sojourners in this world. And there are many reasons why uh, making an identity for ourselves won't lead to freedom and joy and purpose. And I want to drill down on this idea of identity a little bit more. Um, if you determine your own identity, it's going to be fragile. It's going to be weak. Because if you're doing that yourself, your feelings, your opinions, your, your ideas, they, they change all the time. From month, month to month, year to year, you're into this and into that, and we have feelings one way and feelings another way. We can't trust ourselves, so why would we trust ourselves with building the core of who we are? It's weak. It's a weak foundation. And because it's weak, we consistently need to seek validation from the outside to make sure we're still good. Right? We need to hear, you do you. You live your truth. You be yourself. Like, don't let anybody else tell you what to do. You be true to yourself. Like, like what does that even mean, right? Like, deep down, we don't know what that means because our, we, we change all the time, right? This is why we join communities and spend time around groups of people who agree with us for validation. We want people to say, boy, a girl, you keep, you do you, right? And when someone disagrees with us, because it's a weak identity, we feel threatened. We have to be.